0: Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. You know, I love powerful quotations. There are probably few things that have impacted more people and shaped and altered the course of mankind more than a succinct, crisp, statement of vision that has a way of synthesizing an idea and motivating people to do great things. There have been great sacrifices that have been made, great acts of courage, tremendous feats and accomplishments, revolutions, social transformations, and wars. All of these have begun with an idea beautifully packaged in a very succinct statement that have moved people and challenge people to give themselves to either a cause or a vision, and by that to to transform and change the world. You know, words, phrases, quotations, oftentimes are much more powerful than guns or force. Quotations have a way of summarizing and synthesizing great ideas. I, I happen to think, I wonder how many Iraqis marched off to their desert deaths thinking that they were headed to the mother of all battles." That was a powerful statement, and it envisioned something that they thought would be a powerful dream. It was an unfortunate one, but nonetheless, great quotations can change lives in great ways. I wonder how many Americans, years ago, were moved into certain social causes and social services and gave themselves to foreign fields because they heard John F. Kennedy utter the words, ask not what your country can do for you but ask what you can do for your country." That was a great statement. Or perhaps in the years of the uh, World War II when Britain seemed broken and they had just left the shores of Dunkirk and the Germans seemed to have overpowering forces, uh, the will of the British people were almost broken and they were very disheartened, and yet over the radio, uh, in kind of a gravelly voice, came a statement that aroused the British people to new heights of perseverance. When Winston Churchill said, we will never, never, ever surrender. Then there are those quotes, those powerful quotes that have stood the test of time, that give us a sense of who we are and great insights into ourselves. For instance, Lord Acton's famous phrase, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. Certainly that has been true for many, many governments. Or Plato's quote when he said, What is honored in a country will surely be cultivated there. Or then Shakespeare's great line in one of his plays where he said, The fault, dear Brutus, lies not in our stars, our astrology, but in ourselves. There are great quotes that inspire people to great acts. There are great quotes that give people new hope and and sometimes even a new life. But the most powerful quote of all time, the statement that has really inspired more courage and more hope and unleashed more power and altered more personal histories and changed more national ones, is the quote that was relayed by a woman to 11 exhausted cowards who are huddled up in a little room in hopelessness, wondering what the future would hold 2,000 years ago, Easter morning. And she came running to them, and she just made a simple quote, but it was most powerful. She said, He is risen. And with that, all of human history changed. In that one statement, lives would be forever different. The course of history would be forever changed. And we're here to celebrate that great event that we now call Easter. You know, this evening what I'd like to do is give you some of the impacts of the resurrection and why it's so relevant to our lives, but I thought that it might be uh, best to start by painting a backdrop of where our world is today because against the light of the incredible resurrection there is a tremendous moral darkness that has invaded our world. We've talked of it a number of times, but I'd like to give some examples of where we are even this evening. You know, last week, some of you, I hope, maybe uh, took my suggestion as I asked uh, you to uh, spend some time using this week in preparation for this day. And one of the ways I asked you to do that was to get some friends together or to get your family together if you have children and maybe watch an Easter special. And after that Easter special to share and talk and interact and maybe even pray together. We we did that as a family. But but uh, what I didn't realize is that when you went to the uh, Uh, TV guide, there were no Easter specials this week. Did you notice that? If you look through the week and all the great uh, uh, different TV networks, there were no Easter specials at all. And So Alan mentioned uh, Jesus of Nazareth. We borrowed it from him after they finished with it to watch as a family. Made me wonder, was there some kind of conspiracy or personal blackout because of uh, not wanting to celebrate this great day that Christians Uh, feel is the highest and holiest of days that we're on, but what has filled the vacuum this week is a number of articles and uh, uh, movies, uh, TV magazine uh, stories that give a totally different picture from what we're celebrating here this evening, because what we're celebrating is life and, and hope. And excitement and a, and a dream of a new way of life that has come to mankind. But this week, what you continue to see poured out is just a continual stream of moral darkness. For instance, some of you maybe saw the, the Time Magazine cover story that says, Law and Disorder. Why Cops Turn Violent. And you have a picture of a policeman subduing a individual in the street. And we watched the, an incredible video. These last few weeks of policemen brutalizing a man and we've asked all kinds of questions why that has taken place and what's wrong and and I'm not here to to give any kind of in-depth analysis of what went wrong but I think one thing we can all say what we see maybe even in our policemen today is just a sense of another step down into incredible violence that is pervading our society today. We see it everywhere and the fact that the policeman is under pressure and may sometimes overreact or even act wrongly, the fact is is that we are in a very brutal age, much like the dark ages. This magazine, Time Magazine, that had the article on the policeman also had another interesting article on the campuses around the United States and there was an article entitled Campuses the New Intolerance. It went on to describe that Today, across American campuses, there is a new attempt by uh, educators to limit the freedom of speech of students. College students are finding this year on their college campuses more and more that it's no longer an open atmosphere for learning and for probing and for questioning. Instead, it's one more of propaganda in which a particular professor espouses a particular social view and no one can challenge it. And that ones who do are punished. And so what happens is is that now the questions have been narrowed only to select questions and the discussions have been narrowed only to select topics. Let me give you a quote from Time Magazine in that regard. It says, now a troubling number of teachers at all levels regard the bulk of American history and American heritage as racist and sexist and classist and believe their purpose is to bring about social change or to enforce social changes. My, what a, what incredible change of purpose that is from just education and the seeking of truth. Suddenly professors and educators become not teachers but social engineers and not social engineers who've been granted authority by the government to shape students in a particular direction but have taken it on themselves to shape students to social change that they, in and of themselves, seem fit. So if a student objects, as some have this year, they've been disciplined. Some students have even been dispelled from school. For instance, at the University of Washington, a student was dispelled for questioning a professor's assertion that lesbians make the best mothers. Well, that's an incredible thing. There's a new ethic, it's called PC. It's not personal computer, it's politically correct. And what that means is that a student must be sensitive to all kinds of things that the professor sets forth and can only speak and question and analyze only those things that the professor has set forth as politically sensitive or politically correct. I don't know about you, but that's very frightening to me. Because we have rejected the Bible, and then we rejected the Constitution, and then we declared everything relative... And now in the vacuum on the sea of relativity has just come naked power saying you're going to believe what I tell you. Now that doesn't sound like a democracy. That sounds like another political system, doesn't it? And then there's Newsweek magazine that came out. And again, we're just talking about where we are in our society today. Of course, Easter has tremendous answers for this. But perhaps you saw the cover story where it says violence goes mainstream. If you haven't read this in your appearance, you might pick this up. It says, movies, music, books, are there any limits left? And I think that's interesting coming from a magazine that has a fairly liberal persuasion. But there's tremendous alarm in this, and there are unbelievable quotations that you might want to take into account. Newsweek says, things have gotten out of control morally. There is legitimate alarm at what all the imaginary violence going off in our society today might be contributing to in an increasingly dangerous real life. Sample. The new movie, The Silence of the Lambs. Some of you have probably seen that advertised here. It was deemed unfilmable just a year ago. No movie studio would take part in it. And yet the reality is, is that we are in a culture much like other ancient cultures, whether they're the Indians or the Greeks or the Romans, who come to a place in absorbing so much violence and sexuality that you must move to another level to be stimulated. And we've moved to another level with The Silence of the Lambs. It's a movie about a serial killer who skins his female victims. The hero is a psychopathic psychiatrist named Dr. Hannibal, quote, the cannibal lector. And if you look in this particular magazine, it shows a picture of Dr. Hannibal biting into the flesh of a policeman and biting his face off. Cannibalism is the new shock value this spring in movies and in literature. The new book that's just been released, Chicago Loop, is about a man who ties a woman up by her heels and then gnaws her to death. And then there are a number of new uh, pop music by different uh, rap groups and rock groups that, uh, well, quite frankly, it would be um, unholy to list the words in those songs. But you know, sometimes, and some of those words, by the way, are in this magazine, but when you look at those and you read and you say, that's what we're singing and that's what we're listening to, you feel this incredible moral darkness over our world today. Martin Scorsese, who is the film director of Goodfellas, was asked about all the violence and bloodshed and sex, and here was his response. And Here's a major movie director, and he's asked this question in this great alarm by this liberal reporter. And his response is, and I quote, We need the catharsis of bloodletting and decapitation, just like the ancient Romans needed it. End quote. What kind of world is that? Some of you may have read Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness, but I want you to know, we don't need that fiction. It's here. (laughs) It's reality. And yet against that backdrop, because this backdrop is not new, this backdrop has been painted in many, many other cultures. And yet against that backdrop comes the beautiful and sacred light of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to celebrate here this evening. And what I'd like to do is have you pull out your outlines. And I want to give you five impacts of the resurrection in our lives, five things that, that set forth an incredible light against this kind of immoral darkness when Jesus Christ, in fact, rose from the dead. The first impact is this, and you might turn to Romans chapter 1, but the first impact is just simply that the resurrection confirmed Jesus's deity all through his ministry and... Uh, all through his life, Jesus was making some unmistakable claims to deity. Now, there are some who doubt that. There's some who say Jesus never claimed to be God. But somebody who makes that claim is also uh, telling us that he hasn't read the Bible as well. But Jesus, his enemies knew that he was claiming to be God. And John 10, Jesus talked about He and the Father and the relationship that they had between one another. And it says at the end of that particular section of Scripture that the Jews, the religious leaders, picked up stones to stone Jesus. And the reason they did so, and this is what it says in John 10, 30, is because He, being a man, was making Himself out to be God. So they certainly knew what He was claiming to be. Jesus constantly dec- Uh, Claimed divine authority. He offered forgiveness of sin when in that Jewish context, no one could forgive sin but God alone. And yet Jesus continued to do so. When men fell down and worshiped him, Jesus didn't pick them up and say, I'm just a man, you can't worship me. No, Jesus accepted their worship. And all through his life, while he was doing that, he was claiming that the time was coming where he would rise from the dead. As a matter of fact, in in the beginning of his public ministry, in his first encounter with some of the religious leaders at Cana, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. So at his death, Jesus put everything on the line. You see, Jesus lost control at that point, so to speak. He gave himself up and he died. And everything that he said and did was on the line while he was in the tomb. And had he not risen from the dead, he would have been declared in history far less than any other great moral teacher like Mohammed or Buddha or Confucius or Plato, because these men set forth great philosophies and great moral teachings, but not Jesus. In fact, the main thrust of Jesus' ministry was to set forth himself, his person, to the people, Not a good moral teaching. It was his person. And so had Jesus not risen from the dead, he would have been declared far less than any other major figure of history. We would have put him far below Buddha and far below Mohammed and far below the others. Histor- historians would have declared him just simply a raving lunatic, an idiot, a complete fraud, a trickster who deserved everything that he got. But I want you to look at Romans chapter 1. You know, this particular letter, I believe, is one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written, this little letter of the book of Romans. But I want you to notice how it begins as the Apostle Paul writes on our salvation. He says in verse 1 that he is Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. And all of this was concerning his son, Who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh and, and I'm inserting an and here, and in verse 4, who was declared, that's the key word you might underline it, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection. You see, it was through a resurrection that God declared Jesus God. Sometimes nonverbal communication is more powerful than verbal communication. When Jesus started his public ministry, he did so through a baptism, his own baptism, as he submitted himself to the will of the Father. And in that particular moment in Jesus' life, we have one of the few times, if not the only time, when God the Father spoke audibly to God the Son. Do you remember that? The heavens opened and a voice came out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. And in that moment with all the, the, uh, uh, the upheaval that was going on around John the Baptist and especially John the Baptist himself, when Jesus was baptized, the father marked out Jesus and said, listen, listen to this one. He's the one I have my hand on. At the end of Jesus' life and at his death and through his resurrection, God also made an incredible statement marking out Jesus, but it was non-verbally. And as I said, sometimes nonverbal communication is far more powerful than verbal. But through rising and raising Jesus from the dead, it was as if with all these moral teachers lined up from all of history, Jesus Christ stepped out of the crowd when God raised him from the dead as select. And God said, this is my beloved son. Forget about the rest. Listen to him. Because he's God. And the resurrection declared him as such. You see, without a resurrection, everything else would be lost. But the great impact of the resurrection is it not only confirmed, it declared, it shouts that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. Because God has honored him by rising him from, raising him from the dead and saying he is God. Then secondly, the resurrection assures for us God's forgiveness. You might turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is the next book in your Bible there. You know, all of us have the problem of a corrupting conscience. There's just something pure about our conscience that nags us and torments us. But it becomes a very unhealthy thing when we begin to bear humongous loads of guilt and there are many people who carry tremendous amounts of guilt because of wrongs that they have done and deeds that they have done and people that they have hurt Mark Twain once said man is the only animal that blushes and the only animal that needs to Isn't that true we are sinners and yet when we sin and we hurt people and we injure people we want to somehow cover that up and say it wasn't my fault or they deserved it or or, they brought it on themselves or whatever but we still feel guilt and we can go to friends or we can meet with counselors or we can read books and they'll tell us hey forget it it's okay it's not a problem move on you'll get over it everybody else is doing it or they deserved it but somehow after we've been through the divorce or after we've finished injuring another person's life or stepping on them so we could step up, somehow the guilt just doesn't go away with those kind of reasonings. Somehow we've gone out and done something that we would blush if other people knew about. Somehow working that through and trying to dispel that just because everybody else is doing it doesn't end the tormenting conscience. And in quiet moments, we begin to discover what I think is true of all humanity. And that is, we wanted to hurt that person. We wanted to do what we did. We deliberately set forth in that sin. And no amount of excuses, no amount of saying it's just part of the culture is going to cover that up. And so our conscience haunts us. And even if our friends tell us, just forget it, move on, it's still there. Saying to us, that was wrong. What are you going to do with the guilt? And how do you spell relief when you're like that? How do you get clean when you feel at points so dirty? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, as Paul came to these Corinthians and they were very prosperous and and very evil people. They were involved in all kinds of sin. But one of the things that he did after establishing this church is he makes this statement as he reflects back in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. In other words, he says, When I came to you, the first thing I said was the most important thing. And it really made a difference in your life. And what was that? It's that Christ died for our sins According to the scriptures. Now, what does he mean? Well, all through Jesus' earthly life and his ministry, he said, whether we want to accept it or not, he said that sin was so ugly and so uh, uh, horrid to a perfect, pure, holy God that any sin would be or would need to be punishable by death well, that's not good news. (laughs) Can you imagine going into a counselor and pouring out all your guilt? And he says, well, what you just need to do is die. That wouldn't be real exciting. But, you know, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said before God, the God who created you, sin requires death. And so the guilt you feel is real. It's just the beginning of death. So how do you spell relief? Well, Jesus went on and said that he would die in our place. He said that he could do that, that God had appointed him for that, that he would be an acceptable substitute. Now that may sound foolish to some. It may sound like Jesus as a man, if you think of him as a man, had this giant egotistical uh, ego problem. Some will say that they can't, they can't, follow that kind of logic that somebody could die for sin, that they would say that's just ancient mythology, or even that death is too severe a penalty for sin. But now follow this. The fact is, is that through the resurrection, God assures us that death is a proper penalty for sin. And God also assures us that Jesus... Is an acceptable sacrifice for sin, because when God raised Jesus from the dead, He said to what Jesus said and did, He said to that act and those words, "I agree." That's the power of the resurrection. You can have other people saying, "Well, I don't agree with that, or I don't think that's logical, or I don't, uh, you know, I can't follow that." But the point is, did God do something to affirm them? Do you know of anyone in human history who claimed to take away sin or to deal with sin or to provide for you a new way of life and then God put his accent mark on that and honored him by raising him from the dead or doing some act that would say God is on his side? See, I know of none. But what happened was when God raised Jesus from the dead, he said, I agree. Sin requires death. And Jesus, you're an acceptable sacrifice, and I honor you by raising you up. That's why in verse 4 it says that the rest of the gospel or the rest of this first importance is that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. So by believing in the resurrected Christ, a person can find relief. <laughs> he can get rid of the guilt, the real sin, and to know he's clean before a holy God. But apart from that, anything else, any other way, any other suggestion or opinion, without God from heaven affirming that is just fantasy. Then there's a third impact of the resurrection. It gives us the power to change. Turn over to Romans chapter 8, or maybe turn back to Romans chapter 8. You know, all of us want to change. All of us are looking to change. We'd like more personal power, personal discipline. Uh, We'd want the kind of power that allow us to have a better life, a better marriage, to be better parents, to be able to cope with the pressures of our society. Well, Romans 8 verse 11 tells us that the resurrection gives us that kind of power if we know how to access it. Look at verse 11 of Romans 8. It says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And by the way, if you're a believer in Christ, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead doesn't dwell you. Then it goes on to say, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. How does a Christian tap in to this resurrection power because it's saying it's available? Same incredible power that could raise a person from the dead is in you. I think it's the fundamental question for any Christian, because, you know, many Christians are weak. Many Christians are powerless. Years ago, fact is, 1968, when uh, I was on a college campus as a non-Christian, my girlfriend, who is now my wife, gave me this ring. And this ring has uh, my initials on it, uh, Initialing things or monogramming things were real. That was real popular in 1968. Everybody had monogrammed their sweaters, monogrammed their shirts, monogrammed their jackets, and even have rings like this. And so she gave this to me. I had not had a church background. I knew very little about living the Christian life. So I was kind of a clean slate. And I remember as I was stumbling through the New Testament, I came upon Galatians 2:20. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ and I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me, that he was alive. And as I began to kind of memorize that verse and think on it, I started asking a critical question. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? And I have since learned that to be crucified is the key to having resurrection power. You see, God doesn't give power except to dead men. They have to die to themselves. They have to die to their rights. They have to die to their way of life. They have to die. And yet, when we abandon ourselves the way Christ abandoned himself to God, when we are willing to sell out and die to self, that's when God likes to give resurrection power. So I gave this ring back to my wife. I told her to take it back to the jeweler and put a cross over those initials to signify that I was crucified with Christ, that I was going to sell out. And God has honored that by giving my life power. Do you know that power? Have you tasted it? There are Christians, unfortunately, who grow up in the church and they hear about Jesus Christ and that Christ is the way to heaven. And they embrace Christ kind of like a fire escape. They embrace him almost like a philosophy. But they never come to know the Christ of resurrection power. And so what happens is they're still sitting in church 20 years later, dull and dead wondering why they can't change and love like he loved and live like he lived and persevere in sin like he persevered. Could it be that there's no cross over their life? Christ doesn't give his power except to dead men and... You can read that in verse 13 of the same chapter. Look what it says. It says, for if you are living according to the flesh, that's according to your way, on your terms, then notice these key words, and you might even underline them. You must die. There's no other way. You must die. You must sell out. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body... Here's the good news. You will live. And my, what a sweet life it is to know the living Christ and the power of his resurrection. Do you know that? That's what Easter's all about. When Christ rose from the dead, he rose to help you walk in newness of life, not to do what you want until you die and then take you into his kingdom. That's only a sliver of the gospel. The whole of the gospel is a new life in power. And there's a fourth impact of the resurrection. You can find it over in 1 Peter chapter 1, but it's the impact that life or death is not the end of life. A number of years ago, I went to uh, John Ray White's wedding. Some of you might have been there. It was over at St. James United Methodist Church, and I'd just flown in from Dallas, Texas, and Uh, It was a wonderful wedding, and when it was over, everybody was moving out to go to a reception. And I stayed around and talked to some friends that I hadn't seen for a while, so I was one of the very last to leave. But as I was pulling out of St. James, I saw two headlights, just real quickly, out of the right side of my vision. And then a blur, and then darkness. And I remember jumping out of the car, because I knew something had happened... And there was a lot of dust and I ran through the dust and I saw this car wrapped around a tree and two bodies laying out in the grass covered in blood. And uh, I went and I peered into the car and there was a young man pinned against the tree with the twisted metal of the car pressing up against him. And Mike Hendron, who is no longer in our he's since moved on to Russell, well, he was there that night, he's a medical doctor, and we tried to pull that young man out, but we couldn't get him out. And so Mike was trying to take his pulse and do the things that you do in an emergency that a doctor does, but I just remember Mike turning to me and saying, his pulse is fading away. And about that time, a number of teenagers who knew these boys came up, and I just remember the shock on their face. And what was running through my mind was my own children and other scenes that I've been in, where you come to a place where you realize that death is really real. And so it asked an unbelievable question at that point, is this it? Here's this young life, over, is this it? Men have asked that question for thousands of years. The great philosopher Bertrand Russell With all the great things that he said, when he thought about death, he said, when I die, I believe that I shall rot. That'll be the end. And all the labors of the ages and all the achievements are destined to extinction. That's one view. As we move God out of the classroom and God out of society, the thing is that we don't realize is we're removing hope from our life. Where's the hope? I want to paint that backdrop and then read these refreshing words from a fisherman here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look what he says there. Look how he starts it in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, I mean, this would be worth a sermon, every word here. According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, here are the key words, to a living hope. Living, living, that's the word that jumps off the page. A living hope, not a dead hope, not a dead philosophy, not a dead opinion that you can pick up on any street when somebody comes up and says, well, I think God's like this, or I think life is like this, or I think death is like this. Bull! <laughs> Who cares what you think? If the God of heaven hadn't revealed it, then whatever you say is dead. Dead. And there is no hope. Peter says, I have a living hope. And how do I know it's a living hope? Well, look at the last line. Because it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's how I have a living hope. Now let's go on and read. He says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There is a last time, by the way in this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while if necessary you have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the future revelation of Jesus Christ and though you have not seen him you love him and though you do not see him now but believe in him you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory Obtaining as the outcome of this faith, your faith, this is the great hope, the salvation of your souls. That is unbelievable light placed in unbelievable darkness. That's what our world needs to hear today. There's a living hope. In 1899, two famous men in America died. One was Robert Ingersoll. He was known as Colonel Robert Ingersoll and he was a very famous man, very famous lecturer. In fact, the Ingersoll lectures on immortality still go on at Harvard University. He was a great statesman, but he didn't like Christianity. Fact is, he thought Christianity was a myth and he went about debunking the Bible everywhere he went. One of the statements he made, he said, and I quote, The inspiration of the Bible depends on the ignorance of the gentlemen who read it. Well, he didn't like Christians. He didn't like the Bible. But Ingersoll died suddenly, before his time, so to speak. And his family suffered the product of his philosophy. His wife was so grieved that she kept the corpse in her home. Wouldn't let it go. Because she knew to let the corpse go was to say goodbye forever to her beloved husband. So finally the corpse began to decay and the authorities had to come and get it. And because Ingersoll was famous in America, there was news coverage and they went to the crematorium where he was cremated and they noted how dismal and how hopeless and how lifeless everyone seemed because there was nothing you could say. It was the end in their mind. That same year, the great evangelist Dwight L. Moody died also. His was not unexpected. Moody had been declining in health for a number of years. And there came a day when his daughter was at his bedside when suddenly Moody sat up and he said these words, Is this death? This is not bad. There is no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious. And his daughter, Emma, wondered if maybe he was somehow gaining new strength. So she began immediately to pray for his recovery. And he grabbed her hand and he said to her, No, no, Emma, don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. And he died. My friends, every man and woman need the opportunity to die with hope. You may not die as glorious as Dwight L. Moody did. But every one of us need to face death with a living hope, knowing that death is not the end of life. (laughs) Because the resurrection proves that it isn't. That's the great impact of this day. That's why we can rejoice when we think of friends and loved ones and family members who do know Christ, that we shall see them. And fellowship with him, them, for an eternity. Hallelujah. That's what makes this a great day. Then there's one final impact of the resurrection. Well, actually, there's probably a lot more, but this is all I could think of. (laughs) The resurrection guarantees us that justice will be done, that every wrong, will be righted, and every right will be rewarded. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that from the Scriptures. Look at Acts chapter 17. Oftentimes it seems evil men can live evil lives and then pass away with no pain. There are others who do dastardly deeds, like a Hitler, and think they escape in a bunker by taking a cyanide tablet, and they've gotten out of life with all the pleasure and none of the guilt. But the scripture says, oh no. It guarantees us that justice will be done. U.S. News & World Report this week had an article entitled, Hell Sober Comeback. That's an interesting title. In 1991, right before we enter the 21st century, that hell is making a comeback. You may be surprised at this, But Gallup did a poll for U.S. News and reported that hell is more popular in secularist America in 1991 than it was in religious America in 1950. According to U.S. News & More reports, 60% of Americans believe in a literal hell compared to only 50% in 1952. Isn't that amazing? Why do we feel that? Because we can see the evil around us. There's just something that tells us this can't go on. This can't be undone and unaddressed. It's also interesting to me that when these same people were asked, when they were asked personally whether they thought they would go to heaven or to hell, 78% of Americans said they were going to heaven and only 4% said they were going to hell. Now, I would have liked to have asked one additional question. (laughs) Wouldn't you? Do you know what it is? I would have liked to have asked all those people, how do you know you're going to heaven? You see, people will come up with all kinds of things. They will say, well, I think I've done more good than I've done bad. But then if they get their friends close enough to them, they'll say, oh no, Joe, (laughs) that's not good enough. Or they'll have all kinds of other philosophies that they think assure them of heaven. But the question is, how do they know? Has God spoken? Show me. Well, here's what I know. Acts 17, God was speaking, or Jesus, I mean, excuse me, Paul was speaking to some of the greatest intellects of his day. He was in Greece, the intellectual capital of the world on Mars Hill, speaking to members of the academy trying to share Christ with them, and in the midst of that discussion, he says this, look at verse 30, he says, "...therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness," do you hear that? "...he will judge the world in absolute righteousness," and how will he do that? Through a man. Well, which man? I mean, we could line them all up. Let's remind ourselves who they are. The great religious teachers of the world. The great philosophers. The great opinionators. They can all stand there and say, I could do it. But there's only one. And it says here that God has appointed him. And the reason we know he's appointed him and not any of the others It's because he's furnished proof to all men by raising Jesus from the dead. That's how we know. Jesus will judge every person who ever lived. He will be the watershed between heaven and hell. He sets the standard as how one gets into heaven or how one goes to hell. And it all relates to him because he didn't come preaching a good moral code. He came preaching his person. And how you relate to his person determines your eternal destiny. And that's what he taught. Now some will say, again, that there are other ways to heaven, that Jesus is not the only way. And some will speculate and say that God will not judge anyone. In fact, there are a number of churches today that don't preach this. They just preach opinion. And they say, God's not going to send anybody to hell. There are going to be some who are going to sneer at what I've said even tonight. But if you'll notice in verse 32, they sneered at Paul when he said these things too, didn't they? Others will claim that they embrace reincarnation or they're going to enter into some kind of cosmic oneness when they die. But then I want to ask them, based on what? Based on what? Where are the proofs, the evidences? Where are the guarantees that their thoughts and their opinions and their philosophies are really from God? Show me. See, there's only silence. That's how the world answers in a real courtroom, a moral courtroom. Just silence. But there is one. And he's been appointed, he's been picked out. And God has put the proof on him by rising, raising him from the dead. And God has given him the judgment of the human race. And so when the line forms at the judgment seat, Jesus alone will stand in the front. He won't have Buddha next to him or Mohammed or Aristotle or any of the rest. They will be in the line. And they will approach the throne and he will judge the living and the dead. And what he says will mark out their eternal destiny. Him alone. That's what the resurrection means to me. That's the impact it has on my life. You know, when you get up in the morning real early and the sun begins to come up, different rays of light first creep over the hillside and begin to fan out across the landscape before the sun rises. What I've given you tonight is each individual ray. Before you even see the sun rise in its majestic glory, this first little ray goes over there and it says on that Easter morn, Jesus is God. And the second ray appears and says, forgiveness is only in him. And then the third ray appears and it says, you can have power to live differently than your decadent, darkened world. Then the fourth ray that says, and remember, there is life after death. And then finally, Jesus will judge it all. And then the sun shows itself in all its glory. And all those rays merge into one and there's just light. And the light dispels the darkness. Do you know him? Do you know this kind of Christ? Or do you just have part of him, just the part that says, well, I think I'm going to go to heaven. I mean, I do believe I became a Christian when I was five in Sunday school. Do you know him, the resurrected Christ? You see, he is risen and we must approach him on the basis that he is alive and wants to move in our lives and to make a difference. He is risen. Do you know him that way? Are you assured that you will be with him? Do you feel clean? This is the invitation to Easter. To have it all. Let's pray together. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I would just simply ask you, If you have doubts as to where you stand with Jesus Christ, there is no reason to leave this great Easter evening lost. Jesus Christ always talked to men straightforwardly. And to know him is quite simple. You just simply have to give up your rights and your life and say, though I don't see you, though I don't have you around to touch and to feel, yet I hear your voice. And I want what you can offer me this evening. And all you have to do is say, Jesus Christ, I believe in you. And I want you in my life to forgive me of my sin, to give me a hope and a power for life And to give me a destiny and a future. And if you really mean that from your heart. Then I promise you Jesus Christ will be born in you. But you have to give him your life. You can hold nothing back. I can't think of a greater gift. We give gifts on Christmas. But those will pass away. Receive the King. It will be the greatest gift you'll ever get. And Lord, we thank you for this day. It's been a wonderful day. You've given us wonderful weather that speaks of resurrection in every plant and in every tree. But the greatest resurrection, the greatest flowering of life is the one that you want to do in us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that not one would leave without being able to say, I have Jesus Christ in my life. I receive Him. I believe in Him. I will follow Him. Lord, if that be true, there would be no greater praise from this body this evening going up to heaven. Lord, we love You and we thank You for this day. We pray that You might Walk with us now so that we might honor you, the living Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.